0: Chapter Five Part One of Melmoth the Wanderer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Melmoth the Wanderer by Charles Robert Maturin. Chapter Five Part One. I have heard, said the squire, that from hell there is no retention. Cervantes. For some hours after this exclamation Melmoth lay silent, his memory returning, his senses gradually defecated, the intellectual lord slowly returning to his abdicated throne. I remember all now, he cried starting up in his bed with a sudden vehemence that terrified his old nurse with the apprehension of returning insanity, but when she approached the bed, candle in hand, cautiously veiling her eyes with the other, while she threw the full glare of the light on the face of the patient, she saw in a moment the light of sanity in his eyes, and the strength of health in his movements. To his eager inquiries of how he had been saved, how the storm had terminated, and whether any but himself had survived the wreck, she could not deny herself the gratification of answering, though conscious of his weakness, and solemnly charged neither to let him speak or hear as she valued the recovery of his reason. She had faithfully observed the charge for several days, a dreadful trial, and now she felt like Fatima in Simon who when threatened by the magician with the loss of speech exclaims barbarian will not my death then satisfy you she began her narrative the effect of which was to lull melmoth into a profound repose before half of it was concluded he felt the full benefit of the invalids mentioned in Spenser, who used to hire irish story-tellers and found those indefatigable persons still pursuing the tale when they awoke at first melmoth listened with eager attention soon he was in the situation of him described by miss bailey who half asleep but faintly hears the gossip's tale hung in his ears soon after his lengthened respiration gave token that she was only vexing the dull ear of a drowsy man while as she closed the curtain and shaded the light the images of her story were faintly painted on his dream that still seemed a half-waking one. In the morning Melmoth sat up, gazed round, remembered everything in a moment, though nothing distinctly, but felt the most intense anxiety to see the stranger saved from the shipwreck, who, he remembered, the governant had told him, while her words seemed to falter on the threshold of his closing senses, was still alive, and an inmate in his house, but weak and ill from the bruises he had received. And the exhaustion and terror he had undergone. The opinions of the household on the subject of this stranger were various. The knowledge of his being a Catholic had conciliated their hearts, for the first act of his recovered reason was to request that a Catholic priest might be sent for, and the first use of his speech was to express his satisfaction that he was in a country where he might enjoy the benefits of the rights of his own church. So far all was well but there was a mysterious haughtiness and reserve about him, that somewhat repelled the officious curiosity of his attendants. He spoke often to himself in a language they did not understand. They hoped relief from the priest on this point, but the priest, after listening long at the invalid's door, pronounced the language in which he was soliloquizing not to be Latin, and after a conversation of some hours with him, refused to tell what language the stranger spoke to himself in. And forbid all inquiry on the subject. This was bad enough. But still worse, the strangers spoke English with ease and fluency, and therefore could have no right, as all the household argued, to torment them with those unknown sounds, that, sonorous and powerful as they were, seemed to their ears like an evocation of some invisible being. He asks for what he wants in English, said the harassed housekeeper, and he can call for candle in English and he can say he'll go to bed in english and why the devil can't he do everything in english he can say his prayers too in english to that picture he's always pulling out of his breast and talking to though it's no saint i'm sure he prays to from the glimpse i got of it but more like the devil christ save us all these strange rumors and ten thousand more were poured into melmoth's ears fast and faster than he could receive them is Father Fay in the house? he said at last, understanding that the priest visited the stranger every day. If he be, let me see him. Father Fay attended him as soon as he quitted the stranger's apartment. He was a grave and decent priest, well spoken of by those that were without, the pale of his own communion. And as he entered the room, Melmoth smiled at the idle tattle of his domestics. I thank you for your attention to this unfortunate gentleman, who, I understand, is in my house. It was my duty. I am told he sometimes speaks in a foreign tongue," the priest assented. Do you know what countryman he is? He is a Spaniard, said the priest. This plain, direct answer had the proper effect on Melmoth, of convincing him of its veracity, and of there being no mystery in the business but what the folly of his servants had made the priest proceeded to tell him the particulars of the loss of the vessel she was an english trader bound for wexford or waterford with many passengers on board she had been driven up the wicklow coast by stress of weather had struck on the night of the nineteenth october during the intense darkness that accompanied the storm on a hidden reef of rocks and gone to pieces crew passengers had all perished except this spaniard it was singular too that this man had saved the life of melmoth while swimming for his own he had seen him fall from the rock he was climbing and though his strength was almost exhausted had collected its last remains to preserve the life of a being who as he conceived had been betrayed into danger by his humanity his efforts were successful though melmoth was unconscious of them and in the morning they were found on the strand locked in each other's hold but stiff and senseless they showed some signs of life when an attempt was made to remove them and the stranger was conveyed to melmoth's house you owe your life to him said the priest when he had ended i shall go and thank him for it this moment said melmoth but as he was assisted to rise the old woman whispered to him with visible terror Jesus' sake, dear, don't tell him you're a Melmoth for the dear life. He's been as mad as anything out of Bedlam since some just mentioned the name before him the other night. A sickening recollection of some parts of the manuscript came over Melmoth at these words, but he struggled with himself and proceeded to the apartment of the stranger. The Spaniard was a man, about thirty, of noble form and prepossessing manners. To the gravity of his nation was superadded a deeper tint of peculiar melancholy. He spoke English fluently, and when questioned on it by Melmoth, he remarked with a sigh that he had learnt it in a painful school. Melmoth then changed the subject to thank him with earnest gratitude for the preservation of his life. Senor, said the Spaniard, spare me. If your life was no dearer to you than mine, it would not be worth thanks. "'Yet you made the most strenuous exertions to save it,' said Melmoth. "'That was instinct,' said the Spaniard. "'But you also struggled to save mine,' said Melmoth. "'That was instinct, too, at the moment,' said the Spaniard, "'then resuming his stately politeness. "'Or, should I say, the influence of my better genius. "'I am wholly a stranger in this country, "'and must have fared miserably but for the shelter of your roof.' Melmoth observed that he spoke with evident pain, and he confessed a few moments afterwards that though he had escaped without any serious injury, he had been so bruised and lacerated that he still breathed with difficulty, and hardly possessed the use of his limbs. As he concluded the account of his sufferings during the storm, the wreck, and the subsequent struggle for life, he exclaimed in Spanish, God! Why did the Jonah survive, and the mariners perish? Melmoth, imagining he was engaged in some devotional ejaculation, was going to retire when the Spaniard detained him. Senor, I understand your name is. He paused, shuddered, and with an effort that seemed like convulsion, disgorged the name of Melmoth. My name is Melmoth. Had you an ancestor, a very remote one, who was, at a period perhaps beyond family tradition, it is useless to inquire, said the Spaniard, covering his face with both hands, and groaning aloud. Melmoth listened in mingled excitement and terror. Perhaps if you would proceed, I could answer you. Go on, Senor. Had you, said the Spaniard, forcing himself to speak abruptly and rapidly, had you then a relative who was about one hundred and forty years ago said to be in Spain? I believe yes, I fear I had. It is enough, Signor. Leave me tomorrow, perhaps. Leave me now. It is impossible to leave you now, said Melmoth, catching him in his arms before he sunk on the floor. He was not senseless, for his eyes were rolling with terrible expression, and he attempted to articulate. They were alone. Melmoth, unable to quit him, called aloud for water and while attempting to open his vest and give him air his hand encountered a miniature portrait close to the heart of the stranger as he touched it his touch operated on the patient with all the force of the most powerful restorative he grasped it with his own cold hand with a force like that of death and muttered in a hollow but thrilling voice what have you done he felt eagerly the ribbon by which it was suspended and satisfied that his terrible treasure was safe turned his eyes with a fearful calmness of expression on melmoth you know all then i know nothing said melmoth faltering the Spaniard rose from the ground to which he had almost fallen disengaged himself from the arms that supported him and eagerly but staggeringly hurrying towards the candles it was night held up the portrait full before melmoth's eye it was a miniature likeness of that extraordinary being. It was painted in a coarse and unartist like style, but so faithfully that the pencil appeared rather held by the mind than by the fingers. Was he... Was he the original of this, your ancestor? Are you his descendant? Are you the depository of that terrible secret which... He again fell to the ground, convulsed and Melmoth, for whose debilitated state this scene was too much, was removed to his own apartment. It was several days before he again saw his visitor. His manner was then calm and collected, till he appeared to recollect the necessity of making an apology for his agitation at their last meeting. He began, hesitated, stopped, tried in vain to arrange his ideas, or rather his language, but the effort so obviously renewed his agitation that melmoth felt an exertion on his part necessary to avert its consequences and began most inauspiciously to inquire into the motive of his voyage to ireland after a long pause the spaniard said that motive Signor, a few days past i believed it was not in mortal power to compel me to disclose i deemed it incommunicable as it was incredible i conceived myself to be alone on the earth without sympathy and beyond relief it is singular that accident should have placed me within the reach of the only being from whom i could expect either and perhaps a development of those circumstances which have placed me in a situation so extraordinary this exordium delivered with a composed but thrilling gravity had an effect on melmoth he sat down and prepared to listen and the spaniard began to speak but after some hesitation he snatched the picture from his neck, and trampling on it with true continental action, exclaimed, Devil, devil, thou chokest me! And crushing the portrait, glass and all, under his feet, exclaimed, Now I am easier. The room in which they sat was a low, mean, wretchedly furnished apartment. The evening was tempestuous, and the windows and doors rattled in the blast. Melmoth felt as if he listened to some herald of fate and fear. A deep and sickening agitation shook his frame, and in the long pause that preceded the narrative of the Spaniard, the beating of his heart was audible to him. He rose and attempted to arrest the narration by motion of his hand, but the Spaniard mistook this for the anxiety of his impatience and commenced his narrative, which, in mercy to the reader, we shall give without the endless interruptions and queries and anticipations of curiosity and starts of terror with which it was broken by Melmoth. The Tale of the Spaniard. I am, Signor, as you know, a native of Spain, but you are yet to learn I am a descendant of one of its noblest houses, a house of which she might have been proud in her proudest day, the house of Monsada. Of this, I was not myself conscious during the first years of my life, but during those years I remember experiencing the singular contrast of being treated with the utmost tenderness, and kept in the most sordid privacy. I lived in a wretched house in the suburbs of Madrid with an old woman whose affection for me appeared prompted as much by interest as inclination. I was visited every week by a young cavalier and a beautiful female. They caressed me, called me their beloved child, and I, attached by the grace with which my young father's kappa was folded, and my mother's veil adjusted, and by a certain air of indescribable superiority over those by whom I was surrounded, eagerly returned their caresses, and petitioned them to take me home with them. At these words they always wept, gave a valuable present to the woman I lived with, whose attention was always redoubled by this expected stimulant, and departed. I observed their visits were always short, and paid late in the evening. Thus a shadow of mystery enveloped my infant days, and perhaps gave its lasting and ineffaceable tinge to the pursuits, the character, and the feelings of my present existence. A sudden change took place. One day I was visited, splendidly dressed and carried in a superb vehicle whose motion made me giddy with novelty and surprise, to a place whose front appeared to me to reach the heavens. I was hurried through several apartments, whose splendor made my eyes ache, amid an army of bowing domestics, to a cabinet where sat an old nobleman, whom, from the tranquil majesty of his posture and the silent magnificence that surrounded him, I felt disposed to fall down and worship as we do saints, whom after traversing the aisles of an immense church we find niched in some remote and solitary shrine my father and mother were there and both seemed awed by the presence of that aged vision pale and august their awe increased mine and as they led me to his feet i felt as if about to be sacrificed he embraced me however with some reluctance and more austerity AND WHEN THIS CEREMONY WAS PERFORMED, DURING WHICH I TREMBLED, I WAS REMOVED BY A DOMESTIC AND CONDUCTED TO AN APARTMENT WHERE I WAS TREATED LIKE THE SON OF A GRANDEE. IN THE EVENING I WAS VISITED BY MY FATHER AND MOTHER. THEY SHED TEARS OVER ME AS THEY EMBRACED ME. BUT I THOUGHT I COULD PERCEIVE THEY MINGLED THE TEARS OF GRIEF WITH THOSE OF FONDNESS. EVERYTHING AROUND ME APPEARED SO STRANGE THAT PERHAPS I FELT SOMETHING APPROPRIATE IN THIS CHANGE. I was so much altered myself that I expected an alteration in others, and the reverse would have struck me as a phenomenon. Change followed change with such rapidity that it produced on me an effect like that of intoxication. I was now twelve years old, and the contracted habits of my early life had their usual effect of exalting my imagination while they impaired every other faculty. I expected an adventure whenever the door opened and that was but seldom, to announce the hours of devotion, food, and exercise. On the third day after I was received into the palace of Monsada, the door was opened at an unusual hour, a circumstance that made me tremble with anticipation. And my father and mother, attended by a number of domestics, entered, accompanied by a youth, whose superior height and already distinguished figure made him appear my senior, though he was in fact a year younger. Alonzo said my father to me. Embrace your brother. I advanced with all the eagerness of youthful affection, that feels delight from new claims on its store, and half wishes those new claims were endless. But the slow step of my brother, the measured air with which he extended his arms, and declined his head on my left shoulder for a moment, and then raising it, viewed me with eyes whose piercing and haughty lustre there was not one beam of fraternity, repelled and disconcerted me. We had obeyed our father, however, and embraced. Let me see you hand in hand together," said my father, as if he would have enjoyed the sight. I held out my hand to my brother, and we stood thus linked for a few moments, my father and mother remaining at some distance to gaze on us. During these few moments I had leisure to glance from my parents to my brother and judge of the comparative effect our appearance thus contrasted might produce on them. The contrast was by no means favorable to me. I was tall, but my brother was much taller. He had an air of confidence, of conquest, I might say. The brilliancy of his complexion could be equaled only by that of his dark eyes, which turned from me to our parents and seemed to say, Choose between us and reject me if you dare. My father and mother advanced and embraced us both. I clung round their necks. My brother submitted to their caresses with a kind of proud impatience that seemed to demand a more marked recognition. I saw no more of them. That evening the whole household, which perhaps contained two hundred domestics, were in despair. The Duc de Monsada, that awful vision of anticipated mortality whom I had seen but once, was dead. The tapestry was torn from the walls. Every room was filled with ecclesiastics. I was neglected by my attendants, and wandered through the spacious rooms till I by chance lifted up a curtain of black velvet, and saw a sight which, young as I was, paralyzed me. My father and mother, dressed in black, sat beside a figure which I believed to be my grandfather asleep. But his sleep was very profound. My brother was there, too, in a morning dress. But its strange and grotesque disfigurement could not conceal the impatience with which he wore it, and the flashing eagerness of his expression and the haughty brilliancy of his eye showed a kind of impatience of the part he was compelled to act. I rushed forward. I was withheld by the domestics. I asked, Why am I not permitted to be here, where my younger brother is? An ecclesiastic drew me from the apartment. I struggled with him and demanded, with an arrogance which suited my pretensions better than my prospects, who I was. The grandson of the late Duke of Monsada was the answer. And why am I thus treated? To this no answer. I was conveyed to my apartment and closely watched during the interment of the Duke of Monsada. I was not permitted to attend his funeral. I saw the splendid and melancholy cavalcade depart from the palace. I ran from window to window to witness the funeral pomp, but was not allowed to accompany it. Two days after I was told a carriage waited for me at the gate. I entered it, and was conveyed to a convent of ex-Jesuits, as they were well known to be, though no one in Madrid dared to say so, where an agreement had been made for my board and education, and where I became an inmate that very day. I applied myself to my studies, my teachers were pleased. My parents visited me frequently, and gave the usual marks of affection, and all was well till one day, as they were retiring, I heard an old domestic in their suite remark how singular it was that the eldest son of the now Duke de Monsada should be educated in a convent, and brought up to a monastic life, while the younger, living in a superb palace, was surrounded by teachers suited to his rank the word monastic life thrilled in my ears it furnished me with an interpretation not only of the indulgence i had experienced in the convent an indulgence quite inconsistent with the usual severity of their discipline but of the peculiar language in which i had been always addressed by the superior the brethren and the boarders the former whom i saw once a week bestowed the most flattering praises on the progress i had made in my studies praises that covered me with blushes for i well knew it was very moderate compared with that of the other boarders and then gave me his benediction but never without adding my god thou wilt not suffer this lamb to wander from thy fold the brethren always assumed before me an air of tranquillity that eulogized their situation more powerfully than the most exaggerated eloquence the petty squabbles and intrigues of the convent the bitter and incessant conflicts of habits, tempers, and interests, the efforts of incarcerated minds for objects of excitement, the struggles to diversify endless monotony, and elevate hopeless mediocrity, all that makes monastic life like the wrong side of tapestry, where we see only uncouth threads, and the harsh outlines, without the glow of the colors, the richness of the tissue, or the splendor of the embroidery that renders the external surface so rich and dazzling. All this was carefully concealed. I heard something of it, however, and, young as I was, could not help wondering how men who carried the worst passions of life into their retreat could imagine that retreat was a refuge from the erosions of their evil tempers, the monitions of conscience, and the accusations of God. The same dissimulation was practised by the boarders, the whole house was in masquerade from the moment I entered it. If I joined the latter at the time of recreation, they went through the few amusements allowed them with a kind of languid impatience, as if it was an interruption of better pursuits to which they were devoted. One of them coming up to me would say, What a pity that these exercises are necessary for the support of our frail nature. What a pity we cannot devote its whole powers to the service of God. Another would say, I am never so happy as in the choir. What a delightful eulogy was that pronounced by the superior on the departed Fray Jose. How thrilling was that requiem! I imagined the heavens opened and angels descending to receive his soul as I listened to it. All this and much more I had been accustomed to hear every day. I now began to understand it. I suppose they thought they had a very weak person to deal with. But the barefaced coarseness of their manoeuvres only quickened my penetration, which began to be fearfully awake. I said to them, Are you then intended for the monastic life? We hope so. Yet I have heard you, Oliva, once, it was when you did not think I overheard you, I heard you complain of the length and tediousness of the homilies delivered on the eaves of the saints. I was then under the influence of the evil spirit, doubtless, said Oliva. Who was a boy not older than myself? Satan is sometimes permitted to buffet those whose vocation is but commencing, and whom he is therefore more afraid to lose. And I have heard you, Balcastro, say you had not taste for music, and to me I confess that the choir appears least likely to inspire a taste for it. God has touched my heart since, replied the young hypocrite. Crossing himself, and you know, friend of my soul, there is a promise that the ears of the deaf shall be opened. Where are those words? In the Bible. The Bible? But we are not permitted to read it. True, dear Bonsada, but we have the word of our superior and the brethren for it, and that is enough. Certainly, our spiritual guides must take on themselves the whole responsibility of that state. Whose enjoyments and punishments they reserve in their own hands. But, Balcastro, are you willing to take this life on their word, as well as the next, and resign it before you have tried it? My dear friend, you only speak to tempt me. I do not speak to tempt, said I, and was turning indignantly away when the bell ringing produced its usual effect on us all. My companions assumed a more sanctified air. And i struggled for a more composed one as we went to the church they conversed in whispers but those whispers were intended to reach my ear i could hear them say it is in vain that he struggles with grace there never was a more decided vocation god never obtained a more glorious victory already he has the look of a child of heaven the monastic gate THE DOWNCAST LOOK, THE MOTION OF HIS ARMS NATURALLY IMITATES THE SIGN OF THE CROSS, AND THE VERY FOLDS OF HIS MANTLE arrange THEMSELVES BY A DIVINE INSTINCT INTO THOSE OF A MONK'S HABIT. AND ALL THIS WHILE MY gait WAS DISTURBED, MY COUNTENANCE FLUSHED, AND OFTEN LIFTED TO HEAVEN, AND MY ARMS EMPLOYED IN HASTILY ADJUSTING MY CLOAK THAT HAD FALLEN OFF MY SHOULDER FROM MY AGITATION, AND WHOSE DISORDERED FOLDS RESEMBLED ANYTHING BUT THOSE OF A MONK'S HABIT. From that evening I began to perceive my danger, and to meditate how to avert it. I had no inclination for the monastic life, but after vespers, and the evening exercise in my own cell, I began to doubt if this very repugnance was not itself a sin. Silence and night deepened the impression, and I lay awake for many hours supplicating God to enlighten me, to enable me not to oppose His will, but clearly to reveal that will to me and if he was not pleased, to call me to a monastic life, to support my resolution in undergoing everything that might be inflicted on me, sooner than profane that state by exhorted vows and an alienated mind, that my prayers might be more effectual, I offered them up first in the name of the Virgin, then in that of the patron saint of the family, and then of the saint on whose eve I was born. I lay in great agitation till morning, and went to Matins without having closed my eyes. I had, however, I felt acquired resolution. At least I thought so. Alas! I knew not what I had to encounter. I was like a man going to sea with a day's provision and imagining he is victualized for a voyage to the Poles. I went through my exercises, as they were called, with uncommon assiduity that day. Already I felt the necessity of imposition fatal lesson of monastic institutions. We dined at noon, and soon after my father's carriage arrived and I was permitted to go for an hour on the banks of the Manzanares. To my surprise, my father was in the carriage, and though he welcomed me with a kind of embarrassment, I was delighted to meet him. He was a layman, at least. He might have a heart. I was disappointed at the measured phrase he addressed me in, and this froze me at once into a rigid determination to be as much on my guard with him as I must be within the walls of the convent. The conversation began, You like your convent, my son? Very much. There was not a word of truth in my answer, but the fear of circumvention always teaches falsehood, and we have only to thank our instructors. The superior is very fond of you. He seems so. THE BRETHREN ARE ATTENTIVE TO YOUR STUDIES, AND CAPABLE OF DIRECTING THEM, AND APPRECIATING YOUR PROGRESS? THEY SEEM SO. AND THE boarders THEY ARE SONS OF THE FIRST FAMILIES IN SPAIN, THEY APPEAR ALL SATISFIED WITH THEIR SITUATION AND EAGER TO EMBRACE ITS ADVANTAGES? THEY SEEM SO. MY DEAR SON, WHY HAVE YOU THRICE ANSWERED ME IN THE SAME MONOTONOUS, UNMEANING PHRASE? BECAUSE I THOUGHT IT ALL SEEMING. How, then, would you say that the devotion of those holy men and the profound attention of their pupils, whose studies are alike beneficial to man and redounding to the glory of the church to which they are dedicated? My dearest father, I say nothing of them, but I dare to speak of myself. I can never be a monk. If that is your object, spurn me, order your lackeys to drag me from this carriage, leave me a beggar in the streets to cry fire and water but do not make me a monk. My father appeared stunned by this apostrophe. He did not utter a word. He had not expected such a premature development of the secret which he imagined he had to disclose, not to hear disclosed. At this moment the carriage turned on to the prado. A thousand magnificent equipages, with plumed horses, Superb caparisons, and beautiful women bowing to the cavaliers who stood for a moment on the footboard, and then bowed their adieus to the ladies of their love, passed before our eyes. I saw my father at this moment arrange his superb mantle, and the silk net in which his long black hair was bound, and give the signal to his lackeys to stop, that he might mingle among the crowd. I caught this moment. I grasped his mantle. Father, you find this world delightful, then. Would you ask me to resign it, me, who am your child? But you are too young for it, my son. Oh, then, my father, I am surely much too young for another world to which you would force me. Force you, my child, my first born. And these words he uttered with such tenderness that I involuntarily kissed his hands, while his lips eagerly pressed my forehead it was at this moment that i studied with all the eagerness of hope my father's physiognomy or what artists would call his physique he had been my parent before he was sixteen his features were beautiful his figure the most graceful and lover-like i ever beheld and his early marriage had preserved him from all the evils of youthful excess and spared the glow of feature and elasticity of muscle and grace of juvenility so often withered by vice almost before they have bloomed he was now but twenty-eight, and looked ten years younger. He was evidently conscious of this, and as much alive to the enjoyments of youth as if he were still in its spring. He was at the same moment rushing into all the luxuries of youthful enjoyment and voluptuous splendor, and dooming one who was at least young enough to be his son to the frozen and hopeless monotony of a cloister. I laid hold of this with the grasp of a drowning man but a drowning man never grasped a straw so weak as he who depends on the worldly feeling of another for the support of his own. Pleasure is very selfish, and when selfishness pleads to selfishness for relief, it is like a bankrupt asking his fellow prisoner to go bail for him. This was my conviction at the moment, yet still I reflected, for suffering supplies the place of experience in youth, and they are most expert casuists who have graduated only in the school of misfortune. I reflected that a taste for pleasure, while it renders a man selfish in one sense, renders him generous in another. The real voluptuary, though he would not part with his slightest indulgence to save the world from destruction, would yet wish all the world to be enjoying itself, provided it was not at his expense, because his own would be increased by it. To this I clung, and entreated my father to indulge me with another view of the brilliant scene before us he complied, and his feelings, softened by this compliance and exhilarated by the spectacle, which interested him more than me, who observed it only for its effect on him, became more favorable than ever. I availed myself of this, and, while returning to the convent, threw the whole power of my nature and intellect into one almost shrieking appeal to his heart. I compared myself to the unhappy Esau, deprived of his birthright by a younger brother, and I exclaimed in his language, Hast thou no blessing for me? Bless me! Even me also, O my father! My father was affected. He promised my entreaty every consideration, but he hinted some difficulty to be encountered on my mother's part, much on that of her director, who, I afterwards found, governed the whole family, and still more remotely hinted at something insurmountable and inexplicable. He suffered me, however, to kiss his hand at parting, and vainly struggled with his emotions when he felt it damp with my tears. It was not till two days after that I was summoned to attend my mother's director, who was waiting for me in the parlour. I deemed this delay the result of a long family debate, or, as it seemed to me, conspiracy and i tried to prepare myself for the multifarious warfare in which i had now to engage with parents directors superiors and monks and boarders all sworn to win the day and not caring whether they carried their point by storm sap mine or blockade i began to measure the power of the assailants and to try to furnish myself with weapons suited to their various modes of attack my father was gentle flexible and vacillating I had softened him in my favor, and I felt that was all that could be done with him. But the director was to be encountered with different arms. As I went down to the parlor I composed my looks, my gait, I modulated my voice, I adjusted my dress. I was on my guard, body, mind, mien, clothes, everything. He was grave but mild-looking, ecclesiastic. One must have had the treachery of Judas to suspect him of treachery. I felt disarmed. I even experienced some compunction. Perhaps, said I, I have all this while armed myself against a message of reconciliation." The director began with some trifling inquiries about my health and my progress in study, but he asked them in a tone of interest. I said to myself, it would not be decorous for him to enter on the subject of his visit too soon. I answered him calmly, but my heart palpitated with violence. A silence ensued, and then suddenly turning towards me he said, "My dear child, I understand your objections to a monastic life are insurmountable. I do not wonder at it. Its habits must appear very unconciliating to youth, and, in fact, I know not to what period of life abstinence, privation and solitude are particularly agreeable. It was the wish of your parents, doubtless, but this address, so full of candour, almost overpowered me. Caution and everything else forsook me as I exclaimed, But what then, my father? But, I was going to observe, how rarely our own views coincide with those which others entertain for us, and how difficult it is to decide which are the least erroneous. Was that all? said I, shrieking with disappointment. That was all. For instance, some people, of whom I once happened to be one, might be fanciful enough to imagine that the superior experience and proved affection of parents should qualify them to decide on this point better than their children. Nay, I have heard some carry their absurdity so far as to talk of the rights of nature, the obligations of duty, and the useful coercion of restraint. But since I had the pleasure of becoming acquainted with your resolution, I am beginning to be of opinion that a youth not thirteen years of age may be an incomparable judge in the last resort particularly when the question bears a trifling relation to his eternal as well as temporal interest in such a case he has doubtless the double advantage of dictating both to his spiritual and natural parents my father i beg you to speak without irony or ridicule you may be very clever but i merely wish you to be intelligible and serious do you wish me then to speak seriously? And he appeared to collect himself as he asked this question. Certainly. Seriously, then, my dear child. Do you not believe that your parents love you? Have you not received from your infancy every mark of affection from them? Have you not been pressed to their bosoms from your very cradle? At these words, I struggled vainly with my feelings and wept while I answered, Yes. I am sorry, my dear child, to see you thus overpowered. My object was to appeal to your reason, for you have no common share of reasoning power. And to your reason I appeal. Can you suppose that parents who have treated you with such tenderness, who love you as they do their own souls, could act, as your conduct charges them, with causeless and capricious cruelty towards you? Must you not be aware there is a reason, and that it must be a profound one? Would it not be more worthy of your duty, as well as your superior sense, to inquire into rather than contend with it? Is it founded upon anything in my conduct, then? I am willing to do everything, to sacrifice everything. I understand you are willing to do everything but what is required of you, and to sacrifice everything but your own inclination. But you have hinted at a reason. The director was silent you urged me to inquire into it the director was silent still my father i adjure you by the habit you wear unmuffle this terrible phantom to me there is nothing i cannot encounter accept the commands of your parents but am i at liberty to discover this secret to you said the director in a tone of internal debate can i imagine that you who have in the very outset outraged parental authority Will revere parental feelings. My father, I do not understand you. My dear child, I am compelled to act with a caution and reserve unsuited to my character, which is naturally as open as yours. I dread the disclosure of a secret. It is repugnant to my habits of profound confidence, and I dread disclosing anything to a character impetuous like yours. I feel myself reduced to a most painful situation my father act and speak with candor my situation requires it and your own profession demands it from you my father remember the inscription over the confessional which thrilled my very blood to read god hears thee remember god hears you always and will you not deal sincerely with one whom god has placed at your mercy i spoke with much agitation and the director appeared affected for a moment that is he passed his hand over his eyes which were as dry as his heart. He paused for several minutes, and then said, "My dear child, dare I trust you? I confess I came prepared to treat you like a boy, but I feel I am disposed to consider you as a man. You have the intelligence, the penetration, the decision of a man. Have you the feelings of one? Try me, my father. I did not perceive that his irony." his secret and his parade of feeling were all alike theatrical and substitutionary for real interest and sincerity. If I should be inclined to trust you, my dear child, I shall be grateful. And secret? And secret, my father? Then imagine yourself. Oh, my father, let me not have to imagine anything. Tell me the truth. Foolish boy, Am I then so bad a painter that I must write the name under the figure? I understand you, my father, and shall not interrupt you again. Then imagine to yourself the honor of one of the first houses in Spain, the peace of a whole family, the feelings of a father, the honor of a mother, the interests of religion, the eternal salvation of an individual, all suspended in one scale. What do you think could outweigh them, nothing i replied ardently yet in the opposite scale you throw nothing the caprice of a boy not thirteen years old this is all you have to oppose the claims of nature of society and of god my father i am penetrated with horror at what you have said does all this depend on me it does it does all depend on you but how then i am bewildered I am willing to make a sacrifice. Tell me what I am to do. Embrace, my dear child, the monastic life. This will accomplish the views of all who love you. Ensure your own salvation and fulfill the will of God, who is calling you at this moment by the voices of your affectionate parents and the supplications of the minister of heaven, who is now kneeling before you. And he sunk on his knees before me. End of chapter 5, part 1